Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Sora Bamari is with us today. He's well known to all the listeners and readers of First Things. He's the editor of the, the op-ed editor of the New York Post. And uh, people have read many things he's written before for us, but he has a new book. It is just out. It is entitled The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Welcome, Sora. Thank you, Mark. Now, Saurabh, you know, you say an age of chaos. I look out on the world and I see, a, 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 you know, America, I see a rational, peaceful, loving, nicely pluralistic, neighborly society. What do you mean age of chaos? Well, uh, you know, to be honest, uh, that, <laughs> you know, your publisher sets the subtitle. Um, I, I would have used the word age of disorder, which is not quite the same as chaos. But, I, you know, look, what we have is a is in some ways a very disciplined age. We're extremely disciplined by various kinds of uh, corporate and government authorities. Mm -hmm. um, but the discipline that they meet out ultimately serves disordered ends as far as what's good for the human person. So that's, I think, what chaos was trying to get at. I, I, I think, I, let me stop you for a moment. I think that that, Saurabh, what you just said, I think is a very astute formulation that nicely gets at something that isn't always well appreciated, but there, that there is a great deal of discipline and control in our society today. It's not a do your own thing, live and let live. It's actually extremely coercive, but it is leading toward disorderly ends. I would like our listeners to hold to that formula. I think that explains a lot. Yeah, I mean, we make a mistake when we think that there's any society in which some orthodoxy or other won't be enshrined and some clerisy or other won't be empowered. And, you know, one of the arguments I make in that book is precisely that, that the downfall of traditional authorities, above all the Catholic Church, let me be kind of very frank, but also others, parental authority as it was traditionally understood, the authority of, let's say, Sabbath laws to restrain our capitalistic acquisitiveness, mm -hmm. the authority, in a way, of uh, quote unquote authority of of death, even itself as a as a as something that you accepted as a natural fact that set a limit on your striving, the constant striving, the authority of the body, the body as a sort of limiting factor. In all of these cases, can modern Western society has barreled past these authorities. And the promise was always liberation. But what that's worked out in practice in a paradoxical way is the loss of true freedom, the loss of what it truly means to be fully human. And so that's why I set out to write this book. It's a book I wrote for my son, Maximilian. He was two years old when I started writing the book. Yeah. He's now four years old. And I'm legitimately, as a father, worried about the kind of man 
that our contemporary culture will chisel out of him. And so I wanted to kind of alert him to the fact that our, you know, modern, secular, liberal, technocratic certainties may not, in fact, be right in all respects, and that there is a different way of looking at what it means to be really human and what it means to be free that's encapsulated under the rubric of tradition, even though there are many traditions represented in the book. But broadly speaking, there is such a way that would call the traditional way of being in the world that I argue in various ways is healthier. And what it comes down to is not that tradition didn't coerce you or tradition didn't authoritatively guide you, that was obvious, but To what end and in what way were you coerced? Were you coerced by a teacher that ultimately wanted the best for you? Or were you coerced by an advertiser who knows how to manipulate your base appetites Mm. to get you to buy something? Or a corporate employer that monitors every second of your clicks, knowing how to sort of restrict your ability to to think and to have a minute of, of free thought for yourself. Those are all coercion as well. It's just that they're not coercion as tradition understood them and they look different they sound different nevertheless you're coerced so that's essentially the theme of the book is precisely what we began with the question of we are disciplined it's just not disciplined in the right way and for the right end yeah you you open in the introduction by referring to your own childhood in iran uh you say a very traditional society then you came to america and You say that that move greatly altered your attitude, sense of the past. How did that change? When I was in Iran, I was enmeshed in a traditional society without even noticing it, but also a a traditional society that was going through its own revolutionary upheaval, the Islamic Revolution of 1979. And to my mind, even already there, before I ever came to the United States, the fact that the Islamic Republic scrambled my relationship to tradition to make me think that, you know, in a very childish way, but in kind of a not an incorrect intuition that tradition is, if that's tradition, then I don't want it because it's restrictive. And here I come to the United States, a society that in some ways is designed to be anti-traditional. It's by design you know, aimed at maximizing human mastery over nature, human mastery over events, over your own fate. And uh, I embraced it, right? And I, in some ways, I'm a hyper-assimilated immigrant, as I put it in the introduction. And then, you know, look, time went by, certain things changed. Among them, I became a Roman Catholic, so I converted to the faith, but other things as well. I mean, I I became a father, I became a husband, and I realized I actually don't want a a completely dynamic society where everything is up up for grabs, everything is malleable and can easily change. And so that's how this book came about, because I suddenly thought, well, there's nothing permanent for me to pass on to my son. Uh, That's kind of worrisome. So I have to begin to think, how do I kind of leave him an intellectual inheritance? And the book is kind of the answer to that. And so instead of if my son and potentially any other reader who's receptive to this idea is the potential audience, it's not helpful for me to kind of bang a drum and, and say, you know, you should think this way. Instead, I think a person who wants to make the case for, for tradition broadly understood in a modern context should begin by becoming an interrogator of modern certainty. So in my case, what the book does is it poses 12 questions, 12 yeah. questions that you think a, a confident uh, modernity should be able to easily answer. But in fact, our 
kind of reigning ideology either ignores those questions, assumes they've been answered and are no longer relevant, and, or otherwise just brushes them aside. Yeah. So it's a book of 12 questions. And, and because I'm a journalist, I'm a storyteller, I'm not a, I'm not a theologian or a philosopher, I'm just a storyteller, it's not me propounding my own thoughts, but each chapter is structured around the life of one great thinker or writer. And um, yeah. the question is explored at the intersection of this person's ideas and the real world events that shaped his or her life. Yeah. But before getting into those questions, in the introduction, you go into, you talk about freedom. Uh, you've come to the land of the free, but your model of freedom actually comes from about as far as you can get. It's from Auschwitz. What is the story that you tell there? Yeah, so I um, I named my son after St. Maximilian Kolbe, uh, the, the great saint of Auschwitz. Um, so my son's Max. And obviously, I think many of your listeners know the story, but very briefly, he was a Franciscan friar, Polish, very active religious in the sense that he founded his own monastic community uh, outside Warsaw. He was, you know, very, very much of a kind of great evangelizer. He went on missions to India, China, Japan. In fact, built a monastery outside Nagasaki that survived the, the atomic bombing. And, uh, you know, but then the Nazis invade and, and he's he's rounded up as a, a, a for his anti-Nazi activities on, on broadcast radio. And, uh, you know, his famous act, obviously, is at one point a some other prisoner at Auschwitz is selected to to be to die of starvation. And he cries out, my wife, my children. And St. Maximilian steps steps forward and says, you know, I'll go in in place of him. I'll go into the punishment bunker and, you know, starves and and dies. In fact, after the period of starvation, he's not dead. And and so they have to give him an injection of carbolic acid to to finish the job. But at any rate, to me, that was a, a vision of... Christian freedom, and it involves limiting yourself. It involves denying yourself even unto death for the sake of for the sake of a kind of moral truth, for the sake of your friends. And it seemed to me that that vision of freedom is very different from the account of freedom that prevails in the West today, which is a relatively recent phenomenon in the course of kind of moral history of our species, which is that freedom is just, you know, having the maximum number of choices from among contraries. You know, I can, I can, choose whatever I want. And the more unrestrained I am in my choices, the freer I am. And so the whole book, as I mentioned earlier, constantly kind of toggles between these two views of freedom, you know, that what appears limiting at first is liberation in the case of St. Maximilian, a kind of supernatural vision of liberation of freedom, but also natural freedom that you would find when you run up against legitimate authority and restrictions that are actually humane and, and prevent you from succumbing to the worst side of yourself. So, yeah, I mean, the book begins with this account of freedom, and that continues to work itself out in each chapter, I think. First question, how do you justify your life? Uh, what figure do you go to there, and uh, what does that figure illustrate? So that's uh, C.S. Lewis. And the reason I start with him and with that question is because of my concern that with a reader of a, of a book like this, the first thing they'll think when they think about tradition is that, well, that was nice, but now we have science. And science and technological mastery have supplanted both the questions and the answers posed by you know, metaphysics, philosophy, theology. We, na- we now know that the world started roughly 13.8 billion years ago, blah, blah, blah. And so you have a reduction of all truth to the factual, to what can be observed with with either our senses or with our scientific instruments. And therefore, you know, other claims to the main truth, for example, sentiments, art, 
poetry, religion, philosophy, all of these are kind of second race and provisional and, and, and set aside by science. So I wanted to hit that head on. And there's no greater cr uh, critic of that kind of scientism than I think in the 20th century than C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. because he, in, in The Abolition of Man, but also in the science fiction books he wrote, kind of says, well, uh, actually, you know, uh, there are certain questions, like the least of which is why you should go on living or why your life is justified that just don't have the answers to which don't take that kind of factual form. And nevertheless, there are better and worse answers to those questions. So yeah, I think his, his demolition of scientism is about as good as you'll get, so I chose him. Yep. Let's skip a question to go to go to number three. Why would God want you to take a day off? Yeah, um, so that's the saddest question, and the, and the central figure is, is, is Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, the great kind of Hasidic mystic and, and uh, Jewish intellectual. And it's a case for Sabbath restrictions as a source of freedom. You know, in the United States, obviously, as you know, Mark, we've ha we had a Sabbatarian tradition that goes back to the colonial era, yeah. not just in New England, which was— Puritan, but even in, in colonial Virginia and, and in, in New Amsterdam, it, it was felt that, you know, the Sabbath somehow ennobles, uh, ennobles people, it, it, and, it's good, and it's good and just to give uh, workers a day to be with family, to be with God. And this was Heschel's great struggle. I mean, he was born in, in Poland and then studied at uh, University of Berlin. The Nazis take over, and he's trying to kind of navigate this world in which he's on the one hand, he comes from a Hasidic world, but he's also studied philosophy, he's in a secular field, and he thinks that uh, you know Jewish tradition has something relevant to say to the modern world, including especially in the kind of idea of Sabbath as this source of freedom, as this one day during which your non-work is sacred, and you set aside the kind of acquisitiveness and clamor of our um, of our daily life. He comes to America, interestingly, and he, obviously he's rescued in a way from he's rescued from the Holocaust. A lot of the rest of his family is, is murdered, uh, but but he he survived, and he finds a, a a Jewish community that's too ready to give up the Sabbath, too ready to embrace an American idea of freedom, where freedom just means to be able to shop whenever you want, work whenever you want, socialize as much as possible. Um, and so he he wrote, writes a book in the in the early 1950s called The Sabbath, and makes the case that Sabbath restrictions are essential to interior liberty. You need one day in which you're not chasing after, the way he frames it is, you're not chasing after the realm of space, but you're actually consecrating the realm of time. You're devoting yourself to the realm of time, which is the realm of the eternal, and it reminds you that there's everything else passes away except God. Yeah. Um, and so I make the argument that uh, even today we need a kind of restoration of of the Sabbath. I mean that very frankly. I mean, uh, uh, you know, one of the policy arguments that I would pursue and I would encourage the right to do if it were up to me was is to fight for restoring Sabbath laws, which actually persisted, I think, well into your use, uh, Mark. And the uh, last state statewide Sabbath law was actually only was in North Dakota, and it was only set aside in 2019 because a the way that we the, the way we work, the kind of blurring of the line between work and rest and the absence of rest, I think is one of the great barriers to family formation. Yeah. To it's one of the causes of the fact that people don't spend time with their kids. The way we work, even those people who do have a proper Sabbath, you know, the the addiction to smartphones, that requires a kind of Sabbath antidote. And um 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite chapters of the book, frankly. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Yeah, you know, I, I lived in Paris for a time, and Paris is, is very secular, but culturally, that the Sunday off is, at least when I was there in the 90s, it was still in place, and at first, those Sundays, it was annoying to me. I, I just want to go buy something, and all these stores were closed. But after yep. after being there for, for a few months, there was something peaceful about a mm-hmm. Sunday afternoon. I mean, some of the cafes were open, but people were just, sitting having some coffee they weren't working and it was I, I it was a nice rhythm to to life so I, I I think Americans in particular yes you need to read this chapter now the next chapter uh, made me think of the Millennials and generation Z as well the nuns because your question there is can you be spiritual without being religious and I think this applies to young Americans very well. Uh, and, and what you argue there, I'd like to have all millennials read this chapter. What is the difference, Saurabh, between being spiritual and being religious, first of all? So the difference is that spirituality really isn't possible without religiosity. I don't know if that's the difference, but the fact that um, the difference really is that the one depends on the other is the argument of the chapter. Um, the nuns, you mentioned something like nearly 20%, or maybe a little more than 20% of Americans believe they can be spiritual without being religious. Yeah. And you're precisely right that they tend to be younger. And the argument of the chapter is that, you know, these people actually do all sorts of ritualistic things, which they associate with their spirituality in a vague way. They, uh, you know, they do Dead Sea salt baths, or they do yoga, or they do mindfulness in a kind of its more faddish iteration. Yeah. Those are ritualistic things by the definition of ritual. Which, you know, they do things that are only kind of have a kind of symbolic action that doesn't have any kind of immediate utilitarian purpose. Some of them do. I mean, like yoga has health benefits and so forth. But a lot of the things they do involve a kind of self-denial that you associate with religion, yeah. uh, with traditional religion, uh, you know, inclu- including symbolic action. Um, but what they lack is a shared account of ultimate meaning. That's what makes a religion, according to kind of the classic anthropological de- definition of a religion, is the combination of the rituals, you know, stereotypic, repetitive behavior, symbolic action, so forth, combined with an, uh, an account of ultimate meaning of, of life. Yeah. And the spiritual but not religious lack the lack the latter. They, they, they do have some of the rituals, but... Ultimately, you know, as one of the people interviewed in the book, where I quoted a person that's just a random person, but he says, she says, you know, I don't, I like, you know, ritual, but anything that suggests shared belief, that gets, quote unquote, a bit culty, and I don't want that. (laughs) Well, I argue that there are all sorts of benefits you get from the combination of those two. Ritual and shared meaning that you don't, you're not able to access with just your own privatized rights. Like I like to just do spinning, and then afterward I drink, you know, 
fruit juice and that makes them feel holistic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that certainly probably imparts all sorts of benefits, but it's not the benefit that traditional societies derive from religion, which is, you know, they, they, from religious ritual, which aside from, okay, like whatever the supernatural content, the natural benefits are, they bring together people from different classes and, and resolve kind of social tensions that otherwise yeah. would be resolved. There's a kind of an imbuing of the weak with a kind of sacral quality in in traditional religions. Yeah. Uh, that ha- I mean, I've seen Christianity in a, in a kind of very obvious way. God himself becomes weak for our sake. But in also the traditional kind of African religions as well, or in, in other communities like that, where they would otherwise not know how to process someone who has, for example, intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities, the, the religious ritual helps them see that person as representative of kind of the community's whole unit of bond or something like that. Yeah. All that stuff doesn't happen with privatized religion, I'd argue, in that chapter. And uh, I, I would another reason I would recommend that chapter in, in particular is that there you uh, offer a profile of unexpected figures, a couple of renowned anthropologists. What is their story? Yeah, so it's the story of Victor and Edith Turner. Actually, to be to truth be told, I first encountered them in a First Things essay, <laughs> which, which was a review of a collection of five biographies in one book, five mini-biographies in one book of Christian anthropologists. And the title is The Slain God. And Victor and Edith Turner were remarkable figures. Basically, they... Um, revolutionized the anthropology of religion. British anthropologists in the Manchester School, extremely secular, uh, you know, structuralist, not at all, and, and communist, frankly, like car-carrying communists this is in the mid-century, right, in the post-war era. And then they're, but they have an interest in ritual, kind of trying to understand, well, what, what, why is it that traditional societies have these elaborate coming-of-age rituals, whereas in the modern West, you know, your teenage years just sort of bleed into adulthood and no one does anything. You don't do any special ceremonies when you, you know, make that passage. They go to modern-day Zambia, what's now Zambia, it was northern Rhodesia at the time, and encounter a tribe called the Ndembu, and, you know, really immerse themselves in the community to study their ritual behavior. And without, I mean, we can't go into all the details, but the twist in the story is that once they return to Britain, they convert to Roman Catholicism, <laughs> because as Edie Turner put it, we heard the echo of the African drums most loudly in the performance of the traditional Latin Mass, which was the most ritualistic religion we could find in the West. I mean, I mean, that's not why they converted. I mean, they legitimately, you know, made a conversion of heart and mind to the faith, but there was also this element that, you know, if we're going to find a religion, we couldn't find one more ritualistic in Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Let me jump to question number eight, because it goes to another one of the liberal dogmas of our time. The question is, should you think for yourself? And when I read that, I mean, one of the first things I thought was this this contrary condition that, especially in, in professional or elite circles, that thinking has become so uniform and predictable. Mm-hmm. Was this at the background of your uh, of your discussion? But just tell us what tell us what you say in that chapter. No, it isn't the background of my. You're absolutely absolutely right, Mark. Um, it's it's strange that in a society that relentlessly reverences and prioritizes the idea of freedom of thought, 
how little of a genuine article you see. And so the chapter goes into why that might be. And it's really a, uh, it's another one where it's a dual profile, but more of a kind of a dual and also D-U-E-L dual because the, the characters are, are obviously, you know, Gladstone, the great liberal prime minister throughout the Victorian era. Yeah. And then Father John Henry Newman before he was made cardinal and the battle over the dogmatic constitutions at the uh, First Vatican Council. Gladstone, being the classical liberal, saw those and, and you know, they kind of threw a fit because he read the text and they defined papal infallibility and said, ah, so the Catholic Britons cannot think for themselves. The Pope has usurped their ability to exercise their own consciences because, uh, you know, when he speaks on matters of faith and moral under special certain circumstances, then he, he speaks infallibly. And that's such a violation of what he considered this kind of sacred right to think for yourself. And uh, Newman comes in, you know, obviously he's asked to reply on behalf of uh, British Catholics and he does it reluctantly, but eventually he does and, uh, and writes his famous letter to the Duke of Norfolk. One of the greatest, I think, with just absolute clarity about, uh, about the, about conscience, what's conscience, What's authority rightly understood, and what's the relationship between the two? And you know, his, I mean, his argument famously that there, there is no conflict between the two rightly understood. In fact, they're the same thing, just under different aspects. Yeah. You know, the conscious is only conscience if it reflects the dictates of a of a natural law or a divine law. Right. And an authority is only an authority insofar as it upholds those things. So, if the Pope were actually attacking the true conscience, then he would be attacking himself because his the whole reason Christians obey the Pope is because he's he's the he's the he makes external the voice of a law that's already in their own hearts or he magnifies or, or amplifies a law that is already in their own hearts. So there's no conflict between uh, conscience and authority rightly understood. And I think Newman gets to this and we see it play out much more clearly today that the rupture between conscience and authority hasn't produced people who are really rightly free-thinking and exercise their own conscience on, on moral issues in a, in a true way. What it's done is it empowered all sorts of others would-be authorities that are actually manipulative, whether it's advertisers or fake news means or, uh, uh, you know, corporations or what have you that, that manipulate people. Because no one is truly ever free of some sort of authoritative guidance. Again, I mean, I'm kind of repeating my our, our introductory remarks because this is a theme throughout the book, but, he, you know, Newman says basically you're, 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 it's not like if you got rid of the Pope, you wouldn't be uh, subject to, to people who want to guide your conscience. The question is whether the people who want to guide your conscience actually have your conscience's true good in mind in doing so. Last, last question that you have... Saurabh, as we as we as we close, uh, certainly appropriate in this year of the pandemic. Your question is, what's good about death? And you, you've got a great quotation in there. Whoever doesn't want to die doesn't want to live. What do you conclude there about that question? What's good about death? The, the quote comes from Seneca. And I, I at some point I, I had a, a book of Seneca's um, moral epistles on death that was sitting there next to me. And I wanted to get thinking, like, who should I use for my chapter on death? But for some reason, it wasn't connecting that he was sitting right on my nightstand. I was like, of course, Seneca. And it was a kind of something richly wonderful, but also grim in the fact that I wrote that chapter at the very height of the pandemic and lockdown 
response. And so that really colored the chapter. Yeah, obviously, the death of any individual is, is sad, and death itself is, is, you know, from a Christian point of view, is, is something inscribed in our destiny by, by sin. But it being a fact of life, and Seneca would certainly, uh, you know, not think of it as, a, as something caused by the fall, but he would just think of it as a natural fact of life. But the person, whether they're a Christian or a, or a pagan like Seneca, that encounters death, would encounter both in the same way, ultimately, as something you have to deal with. And he argued that the, the drive to avoid death at all costs actually makes life miserable. Whereas if you're willing to live without fear of death, knowing that you know, you might, it might happen in time, it liberates you in some way to, to, to live well, to live ethically. And it gives an end point to at least to natural life without which life becomes boring. Life becomes an endless, you know, he, you know, he says, you've tasted wine. It's not like any, it makes any difference whether a hundred gallons or a thousand gallons go through your body after a while. It's the same thing. You've yeah. you've eaten everything to be had. So why are you clinging to life in this desperate way? And I think that really resonates with me. I mean, the idea that I, I, I wouldn't want I want eternal life as a Christian, but I don't want earthly life extended forever through various surgeries or bio you know biochemical bio biotechnological efforts to extend the human lifespan. I think that gets a bit tiresome. Yeah. And so, it, you know, without, I'd never mentioned the coronavirus in the chapter, but it was in the air with this time where, you know, you saw people just absolutely terrified. And that's, it was a legitimate source of fear. But if it begins to make you act in a way that you respond to a threat in such a way that you discount all the other important things in life that make life worth living, then Seneca has something to say to you, I think. The book is The Unbroken Thread... Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Sora Bomari, thank you for joining us. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.